The following program is brought to you by Podcast One. Recorded live backstage, this is Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. Now here's your host, John Horn. I'm John Horn, and today on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, Harry Lennox, you probably know him best from The Blacklist. He has an amazing resume in film, on stage. He is now going to direct a play. He has produced a musical about the Gospels. Stick around. Harry Lennox on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. Hey, guys, it's Kelsey Knight from the Lady Gang Podcast. Happy New Year. How are those resolutions holding up? Our resolution to be awesome is going strong, and it's especially evident in our episode this week, which is our live Lady Hang show. So head on over to iTunes or subscribe to us at Podcast One on the Podcast One app. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Also, thanks for all your support, and Happy New Year from the Lady Gang. Harry Lennox, welcome to Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. Great to be here, John. Great to be your guest. So I want to ask you about a play by August Wilson, a great uh, play by August Wilson called Radio Golf. Mm. I think it was your Broadway debut. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. 2007, I think. 2007 is the date because it is a Broadway debut that brought you great critical acclaim, but it brought you something equally important, if not more important, (laughs) and that is your wife. Is that right? That's true. I was uh, doing the play with my dear friend John Earl Jelks. And he was dating a very beautiful woman who happened to be one of my wife's best friends. And she had been trying to introduce us for some months. And finally, it happened. I didn't know that uh, that, that was she when I first saw her. But I was uh, very pleased to find out that we were talking about one and the same uh, person when, uh, when I met her, Gina. So she came to see the play. And did you know she was in the audience? No idea that she was in the audience. Were she you came, good that night? Uh, I don't remember. You know, it's a good question. I... Um, or you good every night. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, it's, it's a curious thing. You never really can judge. There's a very famous story about um, Lee J. Cobb. He was doing Death of a Salesman. And Eli Kazan kept saying, you know, he kept asking him how he was doing. He said, you're doing great. And one night, Lee J. Cobb thought he captured it beautifully. And Eli Kazan was like, uh, no, it's not very good. And then the next night he said, man, I completely missed it. And he said, Ilya Kazan said, you were fantastic. So you can, I don't think that the theater performer can ever truly judge. Not You're really. your own worst critic and probably no. your own worst evaluator. I think so. How important are authors to you? Because I think August Wilson has an incredible body of work and Radio Golf is an important play because I think his previous play is set just post-slavery and this is a modern day story about middle class African Americans. Right. So the previous play is interestingly in the, in the cycle plays, uh, the earliest play in the actual time you know, uh, temporarily, is Jim of the Ocean. It takes place, uh, you know, in the early part of the 19th century, like the aughts. And then Radio Golf takes place in the 90s. So that's the biggest differential of the two plays. So the actual two last plays he wrote uh, have the greatest distance between them in terms of temporality. So it's curious. I I think that the, the writing in general, particularly in the theater, uh, that the authors are the most 
second most important part. We used to always say that the actor is the first artist of the theater. You can go up there without a script and still have theater. Um, however, if you get the opportunity to do great literature, which is something that August Wilson uh, provided us with, and several playwrights today who are writing great stuff in the theater, um, I'm actually, I have the, the great uh, opportunity to direct my first New York play. First play that will be debuting in New York is called A Small Oak Tree Runs Red by a first time playwright, in this case, named Lakeithia Delco. So I think that August Wilson really uh, inspired a generation, even two generations at this point, of writers who actually are taking uh, the bull by the horn and are really letting their imaginations run wild, their poetry speak to the language of the theater in a way that I think uh, is unique. I think African-American playwrights today uh, give themselves license to be more poetic, more sort of magical realism, uh, a kind of uh, alternate way of looking at the universe in a way that uh, that I think is also inspiring people. We're not in that demographic, but but I know that August Wilson was the one, at least in the theater, who started that trend. No, I'm reading the book Sing Unburied Sing right now, and the language in that book is unbelievable. And I think we're in a great era for that kind of writing. Tell me about the play you're directing, and is this the first time you've directed since college? No, I've, I've directed quite a bit uh, over the years. Um, at least every other year, and I've done a great deal of work with a group called the Congo Square Theater out of Chicago, a very uh, highly esteemed theater company. So this is your New York debut? This would be the New York debut. I directed that same play, A Small Oak Tree Runs Red, in 2015 in Chicago, and it's uh, it's set in 1918 Valdosta, Georgia, basically coming out of the First World War. There was a great deal of racial tension that was happening in the States, particularly in the southern states. There were a lot of people who were claiming the Germans were fomenting dissent and uh, among the, the black people who were sharecropping and these kinds of things. In this case, uh, you know, there were a number of lynchings that took place. There was uh, a claimed, falsely claimed rape of a white woman uh, whose husband was a terrible share cro- uh, plantation owner who was cruel to his workers, and so there was a bit of a revolt um, really just two two workers, two black workers, but they killed, there's really no way to estimate it, but a handful of people, maybe as many as 20, maybe as many as 30. So there were, uh, but nobody really gave credit to the actual numbers. But uh, one of the women who was killed, maybe the only woman that was killed, was eight months pregnant at the time. And so this play deals with this uh, horrible event as a kind of memory play. So in that regard, it's sort of similar to The Glass Menagerie or a soldier's play, for that matter, that without that this woman who is right on the heels of her, of her, of her killing, of her butchering by a mob of, of white men, uh, all of which happened. She was eight months pregnant. The baby was cut from her womb. And, so she, and then uh, thereafter, she was hung upside down and shot uh, several times as she was being hung and set afire. So it was really awful. Uh, August Wilson deals with a similar event, really, with the death of Levy Green's father in um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. But this is a woman, and uh, the playwright Lakeithia Delco decided to sort of deal with this in a poetic uh, kind of purgatory fashion that while the woman is trying to remember what it was that just happened, this assault, uh, before she can move on to the afterlife, 
heaven, let's presume, that she has to come to grips with what actually happened. And I think in that way, this will be the 100th anniversary sometime pretty soon in 2018. So this is uh, it's extremely important play, I think, a new voice in the American theater, uh, an event that is very little given very little uh, recollection or recognition. Uh, but now in this moment where women are actually sort of the, the cause celebre, uh, it's interesting to see uh, this play happening because not a whole lot of attention is being play, uh, paid right now to the specific form of discrimination and harassment that black women have endured uh, since their time here in the United States. It feels like in many ways that the story you're describing could not be more topical and it could not be more relevant to the country that we're living in and the conversations we're having, not just around race, but about gender and about equal access to employment and about schools. I mean, everything, conversations that we were having, you know, before World War II and long before then, do you think as an artist that you have reevaluated even in the last year since the presidential election, what it is that you're called to do and the stories that you feel compelled to tell and if that's changed at all, or is it just kind of amplified what you were always committed to? I think in a lot of ways, I was always committed to that uh, issue. That is to say that regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, uh, that people should have equal access to justice, dreams, inspiration, uh, uh, due process of law. And this has been something that I, I uh, you know, this is not new. The black uh, men and white women have sort of been jockeying for a position of secondary status since their time here. Uh, black men got the right to vote before women. Um, in the civil rights movement, of course, people were talking about equal rights uh, for women and the ERA and all of these things have always been jockeying for position. But I think right now, in this cultural moment, somehow that the woman, women's story have taken precedence. And, you know, things go back and forth with that. Sometimes the LGBTQ issue takes precedence. Sometimes the race matters take place with the Black Lives Matter thing, of course, a couple of years ago this year. It's harassment in the workplace. And I, and I think um, this purging, so to speak, is, is good for the soul. I think agitating the status quo is always, always good. I sometimes wonder if we'll reach harassment fatigue. I think, it, I think we really we reached a kind of police brutality fatigue. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, where, where it's going. But at the moment, I think everybody should take note. I am more conscientious of it now. That is... I don't think I've ever done anything that would uh, get me on that Me Too list. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I didn't. But, uh, but, you know, I think everybody is understandably and, and in a lot of good ways really paying attention to how they think, uh, what they do, how they express uh, appreciation for a female, even when it's well-intended. Are we being condescending? So I, I think that these are good things and uh, – in a lot of ways, I've always uh, made it a point when Julie Taymor, my dear friend, Lion King director, genius, when she was under siege from a lot of people attacking her, I defended her. Uh, and, I, and I made during, it very, During Spider-Man? During Spider-Man. Because you had worked with her on Titus. Absolutely. I worked with her a, a few times. Uh, no, but Titus was a huge— Titus was the one that— the, I, right. Huge turn in both your careers. Absolutely. We did the stage play together in 94, I think it was, and then we wound up doing the movie in 98, 99. But I was shocked that no 
Really, no women in, on the public record came to her defense. I was shocked when, as a surrogate for Hillary Clinton uh, last year and in 2008 as well, that no women <laughs> would come to her, not no, but very, very few, few would come to her defense. More white women voted, for example, for John, Donald Trump than voted for Hillary Clinton. 92%, I think, of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. We just saw what happened in North Carolina with Doug Jones. That Alabama. Alabama. Uh, white women came... Uh, I mean, black women came to his rescue. <laughs> uh, and I think that, you know, because of the, the potency and the vitality of that vote and that voice, uh, black women are in a unique position now where the black community has largely been matriarchal for the whole time. Black men have always been uh, public enemy number one in some way. And black women have, uh, because of their strength, fortitude, support, uh, have always been able to sort of fill in a gap. And, but I think that uh, because of the, they, you know, it seems as if no good deed goes unpunished. Nobody's paying any attention really to, to what's going on there. So I'm, I'm hoping that in this um, uh, spotlight being shined, that, uh, that uh, due access is given to black women as well. There was a job that, as a child, I think, you wanted that you didn't end up getting, and that is first black pope. <laughs> That's right. How close did you come? Did you even go to divinity school? <laughs> I, uh, I did. I went to a, a high school seminary, and for a little while it was a college seminary, but I did not get to the major seminary, which is where you actually start taking your vows and you become a deacon and all. I didn't get quite that far. So what happened? How do you go from even <laughs> loosely pursuing something that may end up being a priest or a bishop or a cardinal or the pope to becoming <laughs> an actor? Well, you know, I, I don't really— Not that they're not totally unrelated. <laughs> they do have some <laughs> correlation, I think. Uh, the sort of ritual aspect, you know, Greek theater and all of these right. things from which we— derive our traditions were really festivals to the gods. Yeah, the celebrate. passion plays were yeah. some of the first performances of, uh, of kind of scripted material on stage. Right. So I, I think that there's a lot of commonality there. So what happened? How did you pick up acting? Was it in college, high school? And was there a, a teacher, uh, somebody who like saw something in yourself that you hadn't quite seen? I think so. There's a, a fellow by the name of Father Robert Bridge who was in Chicago. He was a priest at the seminary, and he would direct the musical every every spring. And I saw some pretty girls come and audition for set musicals, <laughs> and I went and uh, auditioned. I got in it, and uh, I never really looked back. But there were some people who were professionals that came to see, uh, in particular, they came to see me play Fagin and Oliver. And they thought that uh, that I was a ringer. They thought I was actually a professional. <laughs> right. That's the highest compliment. That this was. is in high school or at Northwestern? My senior year in high school. Wow. Yeah. They so, thought you were a ringer. That is that is great praise. <laughs> so what happens when you get that kind of uh, acknowledgement? Well, I decided that that was true, and I and I thought that I was curious. I was I, I really wanted to be a great actor, and so I started studying acting from like a sophomore. So I would. Look at all the movies with Marlon Brando and Laurence Olivier and Alec Guinness and Richard Burton. These were and Sidney Poitier. These were great, great actors. And I, I, I thought that I could distinguish between mediocrity in acting and greatness in acting. Now my appreciation for what I thought once was mediocre has expanded. And now I can there see. There are more people who are mediocre. No, more people who were, who were great. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like, for example, <laughs> I, I took the bait that John Wayne wasn't a great actor. But he is a great, he's a great movie star. And he does things that, for example, I didn't appreciate until later in, in my career. So now I've, I've expanded to include more greatness. 
I, I was I remember having a conversation not that long ago with Aaron Eckhart, and he was talking mm. about how from the time he got into Hollywood, everybody was telling him you have to be a movie star, and this is the path to be a movie star, and this is the way to do this, and this is the way to do that. And after a couple of years, he goes, I don't want to be a movie star. I want to be an actor. I don't want that thing. I want this thing. And it feels like that's kind of baked into the way that a lot of people are managed and handled. They're pointed to become something like John Wayne, movie star, maybe not a great actor. And a lot of people fall into that trap and stop pursuing the craft of acting because they're so focused on celebrity. Some of them do. I think maybe now more than uh, before because, you know, John Wayne actually had some great skills. For example, he was a very graceful man. He was a big man, but he could move well. He knew how to ride a horse, taught himself all of these things. You know, not just anybody can can do that. So he did apply a kind of technique. And again, I think that a method is just one way of working. And, you know, there's many, many, many. But I think we ascribe greatness to things that we don't believe that we can be capable of. For example, I think a lot of British actors get credit for being great actors. Because they have an English accent. Because they have that accent. (laughs) They come over here, they get all the work, John. So I'm uh, I'm of the opinion that uh, we are underrated as as an American um, people, actor group, who can actually apply a trade and are pretty good at what they do. So. I think that's true, and I think American uh, actors who are speaking just in standard American dialect probably get marks off, that it works to the benefit of English actors and to the detriment of American actors. I agree. That you have to kind of earn your stripes. You have used a word that I am not familiar with, and I studied theater in college, variorum. Is that the uh, (laughs) – do I have it right? The variorum. Variorum, which is a – a kind of a chronicle of interpretations of character. Is that right? Perfectly put. It's, it's actually, a, it is a compendium, if you will, of, uh, of opinions of theater practitioners or critics or scholars about the meaning of whatever Shakespeare was writing. So, for example, in Hamlet, the very orm, which just basically means a variety of opinions, you know, compiled, uh, it was probably five times longer than the play. <laughs> you know, to be or not to be may mean a hundred different things to people. Uh, and these critics, scholars, practitioners uh, would go about uh, explaining how they arrived at their opinions about this. And it's a very useful tool if you're trying to figure out exactly what spin to put on a given reading. Sometimes it may not be in there, but frequently you'll see that uh, these variora have, uh, have a tremendous amount of thought uh, Meditation, to some extent, poetic shadings. You know, for the longest time, and even now, there are some scholars who don't think that Shakespeare's plays uh, should be performed, that they are closet plays. They're meant to be read, they're meant to be understood and appreciated as literature. But, of course, practitioners don't have that luxury. We have to get out there and, and, um, and performance and execution. You know, it should be clear what our interpretation of a given line is. So, so if you have in your mind an interpretation of how you want to perform a part and your director has a radically different opinion in his or her mind of what that interpretation should be how do you find common ground if you feel strongly about what it is that you believe in the interpretation that you're going to give to a performance and your director has let's just say their interpretation is at odds with yours how do you find a common ground where everybody is happy sometimes you can't sometimes uh sometimes you can arrive at uh, at a kind of a compromise, but I found that most directors, if an actor feels extremely strongly, will allow the actor to take precedence in, in, in that. Sometimes, you know, it's um, impossible. I've seen actor and director go at it. Um, 
my good friend Angus McFadgen once uh, had a completely different reading of Falstaff than the director, uh, a guy by the name of Paul Quinn, the late, great Paul Quinn, my buddy from Chicago. So, you know, they, they uh, you know, I remember one exchange where Paul said, well, that's not, you know, my reading of the play, and I, and I don't think it's Shakespeare. And, uh, and Angus responded by saying, well, listen, you're, it may not be yours, but I think Shakespeare is up for, for you know, debate. <laughs> <laughs> Unless we have him in the wings and we can That's bring him right. out here to tell you how you're wrong. Right. We talked about Julie Taymor earlier and about what she meant to you. Are there other directors that you would say have been hugely influential in your career? But I don't mean it in like prominence and meaning giving you guidance, giving casting you in parts encouraging your interpretations, making you the actor that you are today? Certainly Chuck Smith, who is my colleague at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Uh, I've done probably more work with him than any other director. Eric Simonson, a tremendous um, director and writer of Broadway plays like uh, Lombardi and Bird and Magic. Um, Steppenwolfer, a tremendous, tremendous artist, uh, writer. And then I would say maybe... um, uh, Lisa Portes, who is a Chicago-based uh, director, allows me a great deal of, uh, of latitude, and but always is there to support uh, if I if I am lost and, and need a little bit of guidance. So those are you know three that come immediately to mind. Curiously, I haven't done a play as an actor in getting on to ten years, so it may be time time, to, time you get back. It may be time. <laughs> is that a consequence of the nature of the work right now that you can get? pretty good parts, uh, pretty good writing in television and in film, kinds of stories that weren't being done anywhere outside of theater five or ten years ago? Absolutely. That, that I think is a direct consequence of the fact that a lot of the talent is writing for film or television because of the money. You know, even even back in the old days, William Faulkner was banging out uh, Hollywood scripts and, uh, and so forth. Well, James Agee, all, all kinds of people uh, were writing for the movies because F. Scott the, the Fitzgerald, F. Scott yeah, Fitzgerald. <laughs> famously didn't work out so well. <laughs> right, right. But uh, I think it's we're in a golden age of TV. That's what they're calling it now. The the uh, the peak they call it peak TV. I think, and so I think a lot of the talent is is going there. That said, I, I guess my staying away from the theater has just been a matter of scheduling. These television shows, The Blacklist, for example, we shoot ten months out of the year. And to commit to a play, you're going to need at least three months, really. You know, um, sometimes they've they've shortened the rehearsal periods in right. the theater quite significantly. So now you can get away with maybe a couple of months, but that would be a very short run. So it's it's harder to do. But I feel that as a director, uh, I've been able to stay tuned in, plugged in to what the modern practices are in acting and theater, uh, with the wave of technology that has helped really to open up the field. Uh, it's, it's a lot less declamatory and a lot less formal uh, theater acting now than it used to be. The stages have shrunk to a large extent. Uh, the technology is advanced, so you can whisper on stage without having to declaim and, and uh, hold forth, like in the old days, how I was trained. But um, I think it's far more egalitarian. I don't necessarily think there's as much difference in style of performance between stage and screen now. That's really going away unless you're doing Shakespeare or, or something that demands great physical, verbal uh, skill. So I think that uh, it's really sort of be- become unified. 
How do you decide what it is that you're going to do and not going to do? Because at every actor's every actor has a point when he or she doesn't have to take a job because there are enough offers. Mm. It's true and early in anybody's career, you just take work because you have to make work. You have to, you know, pay the bills. At what point do you start applying a different criteria when you have offers and you're choosing between them? Because I read a story that I thought was really interesting about Oliver Stone offering you a part in The Doors, and you said, I'm not going to play that character. Yeah, I don't know that I was, it was an offer. It was an audition. Whatever. But I, a, yeah, I didn't go. But there have been things I've turned down, certainly, over the years, just because I felt that they were stereotypical or two-dimensional, no depth, no opportunity, really, to, to bring uh, any kind of dimension or, or compassion to it, and if it's like if it's like that, whether or not I have multiple offers, many times I don't have any, but I'm only I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm not going to play those parts where people are being clowned, people are already marginalized, where they're even further marginalized, or further alienated, and made to feel as if they're other. Uh, I think that uh, that this for me is a crusade. This uh, acting business, this profession, this thing I've dedicated my life to really in many ways, although I do other things than act, uh, I I don't uh, compromise there. This is something that I remember uh, the great uh, uh, Sidney Poitier was doing a movie with uh, John, uh, the great, uh, I can't remember his name, he he did a lot of movies uh, with Peter Falk and uh, I'll, I'll think of his name. But he wanted Sidney Poitier to do a, a, a part. And and Sidney Poitier said, you know, okay, I'll do it. And he could tell that Sidney Poitier was not geeked to do it. He said, man, never compromise here. <laughs> mm-hmm. If there's one area in your life where you will not compromise, don't compromise here. John Cassavetes is yes. so he and, and, uh, and I took that. I took that as a thing. There has to be one sacred space in your world. And my sacred space, my, or the way I express it may be different than yours, but it has to be pure. I've read a story, too, about an audition that went awry. And I think we were talking about just before we started recording, and it's about being prepared and about so many actors today think that showing up is 90% of the job and they don't do the extra legwork. They don't make sure that they have a take, that they've read the material if you don't mind recounting the story, because I think it was instructive to you in terms of what it took to be good at your job. Right, right. Well, you know, there was a, a, movie, a, a television show. It was a pilot. I don't know if it got made. Maybe it did. Uh, I can't remember all the names of the people. I remember Paris Barkley was there. <laughs> Who's a very uh, prominent director of television. Yeah, tremendous guy and uh, a lot of really cool people, people I respected, John, uh, at, at uh, NBC Universal, and so I, I went in and I hadn't read it. I was I got there early and I was going to prepare. Did you know what the part was vaguely? I knew. It yeah, it was a principal. It was a principal, right? and I had been in the public school system. I was a school teacher for eight years in Chicago Public School. My sister, twenty years a principal, ten years a teacher. So I was, you know, I felt that I had a kind of certain authenticity that I was going to bring to it. John, I was there twenty minutes early. And I was going to take my time and read it and get all prepared. I have a pretty quick memory for these things. It wasn't exceptionally long. But wouldn't you know it, <laughs> they were early. They were running early. If you're there, rushing. let's go. <laughs> Normally, it's not like that. Normally, you're waiting around for an hour. So, uh, But I, I learned a lesson. And, it was like, uh, and I think it is that you know, sometimes during pilot season, you don't have days to prepare or even hours. Sometimes you have to go on the day. 
with no preparation, no lead time. <laughs> That's the game. Sometimes you have three, four auditions in a day. Uh, but I think that the, the next time I'll, I'll, I'll say, listen, I didn't get a chance to prepare uh, because that wasn't a good showing. And I, and I think um, I, I got a couple demerits on that for, for my friends. I think life. they're all forgiven. <laughs> I want to ask you about teaching and about what you took away from that that has shaped who you are and what you bring to the stage or a TV or a film set as an actor? Well, I certainly learned to listen as a teacher. I taught in elementary school. We went from pre-kindergarten to eighth grade in that particular school, through eighth grade, I should say. And uh, that was unusual. So I got a chance to, to get a wide variety of ages. Uh, so I was a music teacher for a good deal of that time. So I had all of the students. So we had them from the age of, oh, three or four to 16 when we had to let them go sometimes. But I learned to listen. I learned to base characters on some of, you know, the kind of uh, the character that I played in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Levy. Uh, I based on one of my students who was something of a hothead who, who wasn't really even his fault. You know, he was at home probably getting two or three hours of sleep a night, parents probably up doing all manner of things. Maybe hadn't eaten in a few days. Some of those students in Chicago, the only meal they'll get is at, is at school. Um, you know, we started trying to do early school breakfast and these kinds of things, early uh, morning breakfast. But that requires resources. So I think what I really got was a sense of sympathy, empathy, um, realizing that I came from a similar background and I could actually just tap into my own family and my own experiences and recollections. But being able to see it in real time uh, is really something of, a, of an advantage because you can pull those human responses and use them right away without having to go through the, the torture and torment of some of these um, method exercises, sense memory and method acting or whatever has come to be known as method acting, which is to me, a bunch of nonsense, <laughs> uh, needless suffering. So, you know, I've, I've uh, actually learned to distance uh, my emotional life and reservoir from the actual work. What do you do when you're acting opposite somebody who is truly methody and they're going to do their warm-ups that are going to last 45 minutes where they're going through every childhood trauma to get in some space emotionally that maybe a good actor can do just by acting? Sometimes it's irritating, but, but, you know, when you do a television or film, there really isn't a whole lot of time anymore for that kind of uh, stuff, unless you're, you know, uh, A-list star. Uh, but most of them understand the, the business part of show business, and they are usually producers themselves. So, you know, time is of the essence. I don't run into that a whole lot. Uh, there have been times in film, theater, where you do run into it, and sometimes it, it can get hostile. It doesn't get violent. At least it hasn't with me. But I don't, you know, I don't get in the way of anybody. I don't tell anybody how to work. Uh, and I hope that they don't try to tell me how to work. Uh, people have different methodologies. Uh, the theater is generally a place of tolerance. Hollywood is generally a place of tolerance, except for when it comes to certain things now, as we, we've been discussing, which shouldn't be tolerated. But in terms of how people work, uh, I usually find that it's pretty, um, pretty tolerant. It feels like we're talking at a moment. We're talking in the wake of the Golden Globe Awards where Oprah Winfrey made an amazing speech. And there's a lot of recognition of what has happened in the last year in terms of women who have been victimized by sexual predators have been able to speak and that their assailants have been punished or at least have lost their jobs. 
And yet there seems to me a question that's still in the air. And as a, as a creator of stories and a teller of stories, I don't know the answer to this. And that is, we have identified some of the problems. How do we make sure that the stories that we tell in stage, in film, in television, represent what the country looks like, not the country club? Because we know that that's the issue and we know it's wrong, and what's happened in the past is wrong. Pay equity, you know, access to jobs, 4.3% of the last 100, uh, 1,100 top-grossing movies were directed by women. Seven of them were directed by African-American women. Of the 1,200 directors who worked over the last 11 years of the top-grossing films. So what has to happen to change so that there is equal access to all? Because that's going to change the stories that everybody has seen, and that young children looking up for a future version of themselves, we'll see. I think that it's changing now, and I think the first first step is to be conscious of what's going on. And I think certainly that's happening in a very big and very vocal, visible way. So I think that's step one, is to recognize and define what the issue is. Step number two is to do something about it. So, of course, there's this movement now called 50-50 uh, by 2020, I think that's gaining traction. I think that everybody seems and to be that's aware that the of it. talent agencies will have 50-50 representation between men and women because they're right. the people who are often pushing clients in right. terms of who's getting hired and who's not getting hired. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to say that my manager for all my career has been a woman. And, um, and uh, some of my biggest agents were, you know, at uh, C when I was at places like CAA, ICM. So I I, I love women in power. I grew I grew up with a mother who is the head of the household and so forth. But I think also, you know, the the, the things that are going to make a change uh, is the fact that Wonder Woman did very well, and that had a female director, Julie Taymor, in my opinion, uh, Catherine Bigelow, uh, Ava DuVernay. These are people who D Reese D Reese with Mudbound and. And then, you know, so I think that it's happening, and I and I think uh, obviously it needs to happen more more quickly and more pervasively. I think it will, and, and um, I, I think that there's a great opportunity here. This is a what they used to call a teachable moment. Yeah, definitely. A few years ago. Well, there's plenty of teachable moments. The question is, is anybody listening and learning? These stories, I think, are, are female writers are able to tell their stories better. So I think that as long as that is being inculcated. If you can find and, and, and nurtured, that you can find that there will be uh, a lot more representation. And I, I think I see it happening, John, I, I personally, and I see it happening more and more in the theater. It's not nearly where it needs to be, but it's a good start, and the, and the trajectory is in the right direction. And finally, if the charter members of the Harry Lennox fan club were filling out their calendars for 2018, where and when can they see you do different things? What do you got lined up for this year? Well, this year, um, outside of just, you know, finishing up our fifth season with the 100th episode of The Blacklist, which is going to be airing pretty soon, which is a milestone for me. I've never been on the show that did all that. I'm most excited about a play or a what was started start, started out of his play is a pageant play called Revival, and it is now a film, and I think it's an homage to people like the great Bob Fosse. This, uh, is, the gospel, this is the gospel, according, according to John, right? According to mostly John, we got some Luke and Matthew in there too, <laughs> but uh, mostly John, and just got a cast that is out of this world. We've got Shaka Khan and Molly Music, who plays Jesus, wrote most of the music. Uh, Takia Kima from A Living Color, Don Lewis, uh, Wendy Raquel Robert, uh, Kenny Lattimore. Uh, it's chock full 
of, of, of stars. And but, you as Pontius Pilate, is that I'm, right? And I'm Pontius Pilate. <laughs> but uh, I didn't intend every, to be. <laughs> every movie needs a villain, right? <laughs> That's right. Why well, are you so well, excited about it? Because it's new. I think that it is, uh, for the first time, to my knowledge, on film, there will be black faith tradition represented in, in film. Uh, this is a great story, greatest story ever told. The greatest music, the greatest sacred music that's been written to tell it is black American gospel music, black spirituals. And yet we've never seen it applied. Ninety-four, ninety-three percent of black people consider themselves uh, believers and probably 80-some percent of that are, are Christians. So more than any other demographic of people, black people are in church every Sunday worshiping. And that tradition is long and well-established. And I go back to the great, uh, you know, the, the great Howard Thurman, who said that we need to find creative encounters with, with God. And this is that on screen. The music is bumping. And I think people are going to really uh, take to it. We did a screening of it in Chicago a few weeks ago, and people got it. They were a little overwhelmed by it. They hadn't seen anything like it. The permission to sort of use this cultural tradition as a way of celebration, as a way of uh, finding solutions to modern problems. And this is, I think, quite an extraordinary innovation in terms of filmmaking, storytelling, particularly with this material. And if you didn't get to be the black pope, this is pretty darn close. Yeah, Pilate is pretty clear. So some traditions <laughs> where Pilate is a saint, John, I'll tell you. <laughs> Harry Lennox, thank you so much for coming on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. This is terrific. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. That was Harry Lennox on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. And if you like what you heard, you can check out past episodes. And while you're enjoying more from Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or podcastone.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. I'm John Horn. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or subscribe at Apple Podcasts.